Reformed Church. If you give me like five minutes, I'm going to point something out to you that does not have a specific home necessarily in this series because I don't know what it represents. But I wanted to give you the, because we're really just doing a very thorough training on everything that the temple means and everything, I wanted to mention this to you because I know, I know there's something to it, and it's something that I've been watching for a while, so I'm going to mention that to you. probably would take me about five minutes or so to talk to you about that. Uh, then I want to finish something up from last week, continue a point from last week, probably take me about 15 minutes or so, do a little mini message about that, uh, and then with the re- remaining uh, time in service, we can continue on uh, with the point that I know sort of especially for tonight. Um, the first thing I wanted to show you, if you can't see it here in this particular room here, this is, um, we're actually going to ma- mention this later, this is called like the house sometimes, and this is called the inner house sometimes also. Uh, there are different names that these rooms can have, but one thing that you'll notice that I put in this room is there's uh, spears and shields hanging on this wall. Um, as I mentioned this, um, you'll see why I put them there. It's not because the Bible specifically says where they are in the temple, but um, David had sort of given uh, golden shields and spears to put uh, for Solomon to put in the temple. So I'll explain that a little bit more. So let's real quick just look at 2 Samuel 8-7. Again, this doesn't really have a particular home anywhere in the series, so I'm going to just throw this out there, actually, because this is kind of where I'm at with the shields and the spears, and then, you know, the Lord can teach us more in the future. But, uh, but just to open up with this, knowing that there were, and I'll show you the verse later on, where it says that there were shields and spears in the house of God, in the temple, this may be one of those verses that show us where those shields and spears came from. The Bible specifically says that David uh, had given shields and spears to put in there, but 2 Samuel 8, 7 says, uh, David took the shields of gold that were on the servants of Hadadazer, if, if that's how you pronounce it, and brought them to Jerusalem. Uh, so people, from what I understand, believe that this, these are the shields of gold uh, that are in the temple, but regardless of whether these particular ones are the ones in the temple or whether it was something else, David did give shields to be in the house of God. Second Chronicles 23.9 is also, uh, this is really where you actually see that, uh, that David put these things for sure in the temple, is Second Chronicles 23.9. Uh, the verse I just gave you, it says just sort of maybe an assumption as to where he got them from. But it says here, uh, moreover Jehoiada, there's a whole story as to what's going on at this time. There was a, a woman named Athalia or something like that, and she had sort of taken the kingdom by force, and they're trying to sort of defeat her. And so the priest at the time, Jehoiada, is giving the men spears um, and shields. And he says here, uh, Jehoiada the priest delivered to the captains of hundreds spears and bucklers and shields that had been King David's, which were in the house of God. So you can see that that's an actual thing that was in the temple at the time. And in particular, you see the, the, there were gold spears and shields that David had taken from that king in the verse I just read to you previously. Uh, I won't reread it to you, but 2 Kings 11.10 is just another account of the same thing. But now let's actually go to Song of Solomon 4.4. This also adds another layer of confirmation to you that Song of Solomon is definitely a song about Solomon and his temple. 
Because if you've ever read Song of Solomon before, some people have tried to apply those things as sort of just like a romantic, like romantic language. But a lot of those things he says are really, really weird to say about a woman. Um, and a lot of people just assume that this is sort of just talking about Solomon speaking to one of his wives. A lot of these things are very, very strange. I, one of them, he describes her neck, and I'm pretty sure she describes it as like the Tower of David. And like to say certain things to a woman is not going to, you know, win you any points here. But the reason why it's so weird is because he's describing, on one hand, this building here, but obviously symbolically us, therefore, because he's describing the temple. This is another one of those layers of confirmation that you see he's describing the temple because he specifically says, oh, actually, this is the verse that we're actually reading right now about the Tower of David. Your neck is like the Tower of David, which, like I said, don't say that to a woman, right? Telling her she has a long neck or something. Uh, but, but when you see it for what it is, it starts making sense. It says, build it for an armory. The Tower of David, build it for an armory whereon there hang a thousand bucklers, all shields of mighty men. Again, another layer showing you that this is, in fact, Solomon speaking to his temple or Jesus speaking to us symbolically, right? The reason why I put these shields here is not because the Bible specifically says where uh, in this temple the shields are hung, but simply because of this, because I know that this is the head of the temple, this is the belly of the temple, these are the legs of the temple, so I hung them here because he says that your neck is as the Tower of David, build it for an army. So I put it somewhere on that wall for that reason. It could have been here, it could have been on this side of the wall, um, and I'm not sure. The fact that it's so close to the head, and I think it's probably in a roundabout, the, you know, roundabout the accurate spot for those things because it says the neck. We even read recently the veil. It says that uh, uh, the Bible, uh, in Song of Solomon, it says that your lips are as a thread of scarlet, which you have threads of scarlet right here in the veil, and if these are the eyes, which we talked about last service, the law between the eyes, this is around where the mouth would be, as if there's a veil kind of covering the face there near the lips. And then you have, uh, well, the belly here. There's, there's more we'll talk about in the future. But So it's around about where it should be. Uh, I'll give you sort of what I'm looking at right now. Again, this is, when I say this is opinion, I mean this is completely opinion. This is, I will even downgrade that to speculation. This is speculation. But because this is armor, and because it's so close to the head, seeing as it could be here, or it could be here, uh, specifically the reason why I put it here is because it says Jehoiada gave them shields out of the house of God. Now, when it says the house of God, it could mean this whole thing is called the house of God sometimes, but also sometimes this room here is called the house of God as opposed to the inner house. So I figured I'd be good putting it here, knowing it's somewhere around about. Now, when I say this is speculation, this is the part that is. Um, knowing that it's so close to the head, I, I, I speculate, I wonder if it doesn't have something to do with the armor of God. Because when you learn what the armor of God is, uh, it's armor for our mind. Uh, we, we have teaching online about the armor of God, uh, but all, every piece of the armor is for our mind. So if it was somewhere around the head of the temple, that wouldn't surprise me. Uh, again, perhaps it could be on this side, in the inner house here, the inner, this inner room. So anyway, I wanted to submit that to you because I want to, I really felt impressed by the Lord with all these series that I've been doing, is just to exhaust it and tell you everything I know, and there's no reason why I should feel like the Lord is showing me something or even starting to show me something that I, I don't share. So I figured that's as much as I know, and then that last part is sort of like what I'm wondering about, so kind of where I'm at. So maybe in the future I'll be able to teach on the armor specifically. So, okay.
So that is my first, uh, I'm not sure how long that was, but that was that my first little thing I want to throw out there uh, at you. Now, last week in particular, let's, let's just review a little bit because I want to just keep right on going and make some really cool points with the information we got last week. Um, again, if you'll notice, Pastor Zay even shared a little bit, something along this vein, pre-service uh, with the team, but if you'll notice, the style of what I'm teaching right now is not for sort of the faint of heart, if you want to say that. It's, it's not for people that are uh, not interested in, in hearing the full spectrum of this. This is not just kind of a you know, shotgun fire of information. This is like strategic and going through this so that all the gaps are filled in as much as I can, right? So that, that's why we're doing it in this format. Um, so, so anyway, so if, if, if you're new, we're going to continue on where we, where we left off last week in this format. But we were talking about, though, how, I'll even switch this around here. Uh, this is the head of the temple. We already established that. It has a, a veil here, and then these two cherubim are the two eyes of the cherubim, or excuse me, the two eyes of the temple. And the, specifically, there was the law, right, contained in the Ark of the Covenant. And the Bible specifically, in Deuteronomy 6 and in many other places in Deuteronomy and elsewhere in the Bible, uh, the law, we learned, could be referring to a few things. When the Bible says the law, it could be referring to the Old Testament law, specifically, or the New Testament law, which is the gospel, which only requires faith. It could also be referring to some other things, too. Sometimes the first five books of the Bible are referred to as the law. If you read Galatians also, for instance, chapter, I think it's chapter 4, uh, Paul says, you who desire to be under the law, do you hear the law? And then he quotes Genesis. So he says Genesis is the law. That shows you also the law could be talking about the first five books also. So, but in particular... The law that we were showing that is in between the eyes of the temple here is specifically talking about the new covenant law. We went over that last time, uh, symbolically. In reality, it was the Ten Commandments in there, but we know uh, that those, the old covenant law here is symbolic of the new covenant law. Uh, again, a lot of information last time. So you have the, the temple with the law between her eyes. That is actually where the Bible says to keep his word, to keep his law, to keep the gospel between your eyes. In, in uh, specific, really, Deuteronomy is where you see a lot of that, keeping the law between your eyes. Deuteronomy 6 is where he actually prophesies of the new covenant law, which is to love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, uh, mind, strength. That's the new covenant law, which the Bible actually defines that in 1 John as meaning faith. You may not uh, agree with that or see that right now, but that's actually how 1 John defines that commandment. So in Deuteronomy, when he's talking about the new covenant law, I've just put faith in Jesus. He's talking about the gospel. He specifically says to keep it between your eyes, which is what you see the temple is doing as a symbol of how we should conduct ourselves. What does it mean for the law to be between your eyes? Well, our eyes are just symbols of our understanding. So to keep something between your eyes would mean to keep it in the midst of your heart, in the midst of your understanding, in the middle of your, of your mind, okay? And that's exactly what you see here. She's got a veil because she doesn't see everything of what she has on the inside of her but she has these olive tree cherubim eyes. Those cherubim are made out of olive wood, showing clarity in her eyes. She's learning, and you know she's not a blind temple because she already has the law between her eyes. So she has the word of God in her mind already. Not to mention the, the, the material of the cherubim are made of olive wood, showing clarity if you look at our glossary. So there's all of that. She doesn't see everything right now. But it's important. Let's, let's continue with that thought, though. She's got the law between her eyes. Another characteristic in Deuteronomy about the new covenant law is in Deuteronomy 
chapter 5, verse 32. I'm going to read from the New King James Version here just for a little bit. Deuteronomy 5.32. And uh, it says here, Therefore you shall be careful to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. This is very important, okay? Very important terminology. I have not seen this anywhere. I've done searches through the Bible to, to, to verify this. I have not seen that term about not turning to the right or to the left used ever for the Old Testament law only for the New Testament law. And you may say, well, the Deuteronomy is the Old Testament law, but you'd be mistaken there, actually. It is a prophecy of the New Testament law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength was never said at Mount Sinai, not one time. It's only said in Deuteronomy 40 years later when they were in the plains of Moab. We have the Obedience of Faith article that will bring you through that entire thing. Okay, so this is a prophecy of the New Covenant law. That's why Jesus, when he said, what's the greatest commandment? He didn't quote the Old Testament one. He quoted the greatest one is the New Testament one, which is love the Lord your God with your heart. A commandment never spoken at Mount Sinai. Okay, very important. But with this said, don't turn from the right or to the left is something that I believe is fully unique in that term to the New Testament law, to the gospel. Don't turn from it to the right hand or to the left. For instance, this is why in Joshua, I believe it's Joshua 1, verse 7. You could throw that up there behind me. Uh, God tells Joshua to meditate on my law. But again, when he says law, you have to look for context clues there to know, obviously the Lord will show you that, as to what law he's talking about. You know, because when the Bible just says law, you don't know right off the bat. When he speaks to Joshua, though, he actually says, uh, you'll notice halfway through, do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left regarding this law that Moses, my servant, commanded. Well, Moses commanded two different kinds of laws. He did one at Mount Sinai, which he gave to the people on, on tablets, and also all the things that were spoken after. But then 40 years later, God gave him this other thing, and uh, uh, God gave the people this other commandment. So you know he's talking about the New Testament law here, which is why when you keep this one, you're going to prosper wherever you go. If you try to keep the Old Testament commandments, you're going to be cursed, is basically the way that it was. Okay? You'll never prosper by trying to meditate on the Old Testament law as it, as it, uh, as it is on the surface about your works. The reason why you're going to prosper is because you know this is talking about the Old Testament, the, sorry, the New Testament law, because it says, do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, which is terminology specifically used for, in Deuteronomy and also regarding the gospel, the new covenant law. So take those two things now. We've got two characteristics. One, which we talked about last week. For those listening online that didn't hear last week, you can look at Deuteronomy 6, 8, and uh, that will show you that he goes on to say to also keep it between your eyes. Okay? So you've got these two characteristics about the, the gospel. Keep it between your eyes, which is what you see the temple doing right there with the law between her eyes. Uh, but also, don't turn from it to the right hand or to the left. What does that mean? Obviously, what he's talking about is not getting distracted from the thing that God has put in the midst of your heart. God will speak things to you regarding Jesus. He will show you, uh, you know, uh, things that you don't now know. He will reveal those things to you about who you are in Christ, what you have to expect in your life. And he says, keep that in the middle of your heart. That's what keep it between your eyes is. Keep it in the middle of your eyes. Uh, keep it there and... Don't turn from it, to the right or to the left. Don't be distracted on your course to seeing a manifestation. Don't be distracted in your course to seeing everything that God has planned for your life that Jesus provided 2,000 years ago. Don't be distracted by that, turning to the right hand or to the left. But keep it right in the middle of your heart. Don't keep it in the back of your mind. Keep it right in the middle of your heart, in the center of your thinking. Let Jesus and who he is be, be, be uh, 
guarded right in the middle of your heart and don't turn from that. That's, those are characteristics of what Deuteronomy says on how to treat his words, specifically the gospel. And we know, right, the gospel of what Jesus has done. Two characteristics. So, again, before we go further, between your eyes and don't turn from it to the right hand or to the left. Just two I'm just pulling out of Deuteronomy here. Okay? Uh, there are more verses if you're interested of those characteristics. Deuteronomy 11, 18, Exodus 13, 9, Deuteronomy 28, 14, and then Joshua 1, 7, which I just read to you. So let, let's move on from that, though. Why doesn't God want... You can throw up uh, Colossians 2, 8. Why doesn't God want us to turn to the right hand or to the left from the gospel that he's put in the middle of our heart? Why doesn't God want his temple, which is us, to turn right or left, start looking elsewhere? He just wants you to pay attention. That's why the two cherubim are facing inward. We verify that from scripture, that these two cherubim are actually looking inward at the law, at the gospel that's in the middle of its heart, right? We did all that last week. Now, uh, why is it that God doesn't want the temple, though, to look anywhere else? and just keep that right in the middle of its, of its heart. Because of what Colossians 2.8 says. It says, beware lest anyone cheat you. The word cheat there actually means spoil, like in war, like if uh, one army spoils another army. Uh, some translations even say rob. Uh, it, it's probably all in the vicinity, in the correct vicinity, but not that anyone can actually rob your inheritance as a believer, but someone could, I, I guess it would be accurate to say rob you of fruitfulness, right? Keep you from fruitfulness, of manifesting that, sure then how is it that someone keeps you or cheats you of the fruitfulness that you can see in your life? It says, through philosophy, ways of thinking, empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Ultimately, he talks about different ways of thinking and deceit, but he sums it all up by saying, you know how people cheat you? By speaking things to you that are not according to Christ. Uh, People have asked before, what's the most dangerous doctrine in the world? And if I were to ask you that, don't, don't say it out loud, Think to yourself, what do you think is the most dangerous doctrine in the world today? The most dangerous doctrine, maybe even in the church today. What what, what would you think? If I gave you a second to think about that. The worst doctrine, the the, the most dangerous one. Um, The truth is, uh, there is not one particular doctrine as far as what he named here, the tradition of men. Because if you were to say, oh, people's tradition, you might think that. Uh, We even talk about that here sometimes, right? That we choose the truth of Jesus over tradition, right? Uh, it, oh, it would be the tradition of men, Pastor Mike. It would be, you know, the sovereignty of God, that false sovereignty of God message, you know, where God controls everything. It would be, you know, anything that's not of grace, Pastor Mike. No, it, it, actually, all those things, it wouldn't be any of those things. It's just anything that's not according to Christ. Jesus is the only way to receive from God. Anything that sways your mind from that is equally dangerous because there's only one way to live, and that would be Jesus, right? He said he's the only way. So just because, you know, you talk about God, for instance, but you don't talk about Jesus. You just talk about God and God's plan and positive thinking or something like that. Just because it sounds better doesn't mean it's not going to kill people any less, right? Uh, just because, you know, you, you, someone over here is talking about doom and gloom and judgment doesn't make that more dangerous than the positive thinking over here that leaves Jesus out. It's all equally dangerous because there's only one way to live. That's Jesus, right? And so that's why God doesn't want you to turn to the right hand or to the left, because the gospel of his son, he wants that kept in between your eyes. And remember, I just gave you a quick preview that Deuteronomy is, in fact, referring to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's where it says to keep it in the midst of your heart. So anything that turns your heart this way, that way, up ways, down ways, whatever it is, right? Uh, any direction in which you turn your mind, specifically Deuteronomy terming it as 
right hand or to the left, is going to cheat you of what God has for you. Uh, because it's about Jesus. That's the only doctrine that can cause you to receive from God, is learning about what Jesus did for you. Not what you can do for Jesus, because even people might think they're teaching Jesus. And they're teaching Jesus an example that we need to live up to. Well, that's, that's, that's just the same as the law, then. It's another standard to live up to. Uh, and don't get me wrong, Jesus was a great example. He was a great example. The Bible talks about that. Uh, and he's, he's a great example for the Holy Spirit to produce similar fruit in certain ways to when he walked the earth, although not exactly the same for certain biblical reasons. But with that said, though, uh, it's, it would just be another standard to live up to if we were teaching Jesus that way. It's about what Jesus did for you, learning that. That's the only way you can receive. So whenever you look to the right or hand or to the left uh, from what Jesus did for you at the cross, it's cheating you. That's why God wants his temple focused on the gospel only. And just don't get distracted by anything else. God has spoken things to us here at this church. God has told us things about who we are and what we have to expect in our life based on everything that Jesus provided at the cross. Do not be distracted from those things for, for any purpose whatsoever. Keep those things not on the, in the back of your mind. Involve those thoughts in everything that goes on in your mind. Put everything in context of that. That's keeping in the middle of your heart. Keep it right in the middle, right in between your eyes. Um, in particular, John 10, 7, I'm, I'm almost wrapping this particular segment up. Just give me a few more minutes on this. John 10, verse 7, also New King James Version. Jesus says something very similar. Before, remember, he said that anytime you, 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 you receive words that are not according to Christ, uh, Deuteronomy would term it as turning to the right hand or to the left. You're being cheated. You're being robbed of that fruitfulness you could be seeing in your life. Well, Jesus says something very similar in John 10, and he says, Jesus said to them again, most assuredly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. That means he's the only way to receive from God. And if Jesus is the only way to receive from God, what do you think is going to happen if you start hearing stuff that's not according to Christ, not according to your only way to receive from God? Well, you're not going to receive from God, right? Even if it's really positive. Even if, if, even if they say, like, grace a lot, if it's not according to Christ, if it's not based on Jesus, if it's not Jesus' teaching, if it's not based on the cross and what he's done, if it's, if it's detracting the attention from him and on anything, positive-sounding or negative-sounding, right or left, doesn't matter which, which extreme you're on, it needs to be centered on Jesus. Uh, and when you don't do that, if Jesus is the only way to receive from God, as he says right here, I'm the door of the sheep, what's going to happen? Well, Colossians said you're going to get cheated, here in verse 8, he says, all who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. So he actually terms people. This is a whole very, very jam-packed parable here. So I'm not going to give you the context of the parable. But basically what he's saying here is that when you listen to anybody else apart from Jesus, uh, you're being robbed is what he's saying here. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers. If I were to explain the whole parable in context, which I do in the Chase Me series, what he's saying here is that when, when, you, when, you, when you listen to other people that are not showing you Jesus, that are not leading you to see Jesus, you're being robbed, you're, you're, you're exposing yourself to a thief. Uh, it doesn't matter right or left, that's what's happening, okay? Uh, so with, with all that said, the, the really interesting thing about all this stuff that we've, we've just been talking about, about keeping this thing in the midst of your heart, don't turn right or left, anything that's not according to Christ is... is you know, a thief and a robber, that whole thing. The interesting thing, though, about this, if you look at, at uh, John 19, 17. John 19, 17. 
Um, this is the Jesus crucifixion. And actually, when Jesus was crucified, God painted this picture of everything I just told you. God painted this picture at Calvary uh, to, to show us who should be at the center of our heart and what not to do. As we've just been saying, don't turn to the right or to the left. You see here, Jesus was actually crucified. There's different symbolic voices that things have in the Bible, but this is just one I'm pointing out. Is that he bearing his cross, Jesus bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is in Hebrew called uh, Golgotha. So Golgotha just means place of a, a skull. All right, so, so he's, he's crucified in this skull place. And then he says, where they crucified him in verse 18, and two others with him, one on either side, and Jesus in the center. Jesus in the center of the skull. You, can, you, can you see that picture already? Jesus in the center of the skull, right? We, we know, right, the gospel that's kept right in the center of this person's skull right here, because this is the skull of the temple. The gospel that's kept right in the center of that skull, we know, we, we verified this last week, and I just gave you a little preview now, that gospel is Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the message of the cross. That that's, talk, that's not talking about the Old Testament law. That's talking about the New Testament gospel. That's what that's symbolizing here. And go to Mark 15, 27. So Jesus is right, kept right in the center of the place of the skull, and you already can start seeing similarities to everything I just taught on a second ago. Mark 15, 27, though, specifically says about those that were crucified on his right and his left. Look, it says, with him, they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. So lit literally, the, the scene of the cross is a skull with Jesus kept in the center. And on the right and on the left is a thief and a robber. And you can literally see just from that picture painted there, combined with all the verses I was just giving you about how God tells us to treat the New Testament law, his gospel, about Jesus. That God wants his gospel, which is his crucifixion. That is, the gospel is called the message of the cross in 1 Corinthians. He wants you to keep Christ and him crucified, all that he was providing you, everything he did for you. The cross is not you serving God, right? The cross is Jesus serving you. Now, you don't have to like that. That can make you uncomfortable, but that's the gospel. Jesus serving you is the gospel. You weren't doing anything for God at the cross. And if the gospel is called the message of the cross, that means the message about what Jesus did for you. Because the cross is his serving you, not you serving him. The Old Testament law is you serving him, which that, that's why that didn't work out. The New Testament law, the gospel, is about what Jesus did for you. Christ him crucified. And you can see painted there, God wants you to keep Christ him crucified at the center of your skull, which literally, this is the skull of the temple, as we've been learning for weeks. God wants you to keep Christ him crucified in the center of your skull. Everything Jesus did for you, every, every problem he fixed for you, all the things he rectified for you, all the things he did for you that you couldn't do for him, all, all that service, he wants you to keep that in the center of your skull. And why doesn't he want his temple to turn to the right hand or to the left? Because that was a mandate, right, in Deuteronomy as to how to treat the law. Don't turn to the right hand or to the left. Well, we said from Colossians, when you turn to anything that's not Christ and crucified, it cheats you. Jesus said when you follow after or you, you, you listen to any voice of a stranger apart from him, it, you, you're being robbed. It's a thief and a robber. And literally at the crucifixion, you see Jesus being kept in the center as he should be, as we endeavor to do at this church by the Spirit of God, to keep Jesus in the center of everybody's skull, to keep him and what he's done for people at the center of attention, and we don't want to turn to anyone else's voice, to any other message, to any other form of doctrine, because if you turn to the left, it's a thief. You turn to the right, it's a robber. 
you're being cheated, you're being spoiled, you're being robbed, any direction you turn in your heart besides Jesus Christ and him crucified and what he did for you. I taught a master a long time ago called Skull and Cross, instead of like Skull and Crossbones, Skull and Cross, but because the crucifixion is uh, a, a sort of summary of all the verse I even just read to you and a lot more on how we ought to handle the gospel. So it's a good encouragement to continue to stay focused on what God has taught you about Jesus, what he's provided, and what you have to expect in your life. Uh, and don't get distracted with anything else because God doesn't want you to be cheated out of the fruitfulness that you are inevitably on your way to as long as Jesus is kept in the center. You are inevitably on your way setting yourself up for fruitfulness, but people are out to rob you of the fruit that you can see by taking your eyes off of Jesus. So just don't let that happen, and you just continue to acknowledge the Lord and keep Jesus in the center. A uh, lot of great stuff there. So this, this really does fill in the gaps of what we talked about last time, about keeping the law in the center. I was trying to prove the point to you actually last week that this law was referring to the message of Jesus. This sort of just solidifies that even a little bit more uh, because you literally see a Golgotha right there, a place of a skull with Jesus being kept in the center, right? That's, that's an amazing, awesome thing that you see with this temple in the way that it's just like resting with the work by the Spirit and just the only thing God wants it to do is to keep what Jesus did for it in the center of its heart. That's just so awesome. If you want another verse about keeping Jesus or keeping that law in the center of your heart, which I think I gave you last week, uh, Proverbs 4, 20 through 21 goes into that as well. All right. For the rest of the message, I want to make somewhat of a separate point. We're still going to be talking about this room, though, and I will be talking about this room for probably the next several weeks. There's, believe it or not, there is, there's, Definitely a lot more to go over with this. So before we even make specific address to this room uh, with the remaining time that we have, uh, I need to explain to you what the inner man is in the Bible. You read that a, a lot in the New Testament, and you can bring us to uh, 1 Corinthians 3.3. 3. I'm going to read this from the Young's Literal Translation. Young's Literal Translation, or the LSV, the Literal Standard Version, are great translations to use alongside whatever you read you know, in your, your daily reading. But the inward man, actually, when I used to see that, I used to think maybe that was talking about like my spirit, the inward man, like the thing inside of me, right? Uh, but the inward man is actually referring to your mind, all right? I can prove that to you uh, with a lot of scripture. I'm going to give you a few of those now. But uh, the inward man, the word man in particular... It, the, the definition of the word man could be maybe a little bit broader or more specific than this, but definitely refers to flesh. One verse you see that in here, uh, Paul tells them in 1 Corinthians 3.3, 3, For yet you are fleshly, for where there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not fleshly? So he says you are fleshly and in the manner of men walk. So you know that uh, uh, being fleshly of the flesh Walking in the manner of what? Instead of saying, saying walk in the manner of flesh, as he previously had just basically said, you are fleshly or of the flesh in the manner of men do walk. The word man here is being used sort of interchangeable with the word flesh here. So inward man, this is why it's not surprising that our mind is called the inward man, because your mind 
is a part of your flesh, actually. It's the inward part of your flesh. You know your mind is part of your flesh because even in 1 Corinthians, I think in just the previous chapter, in chapter 2, he says um, that many of the Corinthians were not wise according to the flesh. Now, wisdom is a state of mind, right? Not an action you do with your body. Wisdom. And he says, not many of you were wise. He's saying that they weren't smart according to the flesh. So you can see that wisdom is a part, oh, excuse me, your mind is a part of your flesh, even just with that verse alone. But your mind specifically is called your inward man or your inward flesh. So you've got an outward flesh and an inward flesh. Okay, it's both part of your flesh. Uh, sometimes when the Bible says flesh, it's just talking about your body because your body is called your flesh. And then your mind's called your inward flesh. So hopefully that doesn't confuse us if you're following me, right? Sometimes your body is just called your flesh because your body is referred to as the flesh and then you have the inward flesh. All right, so with that said, uh, some verses, I'll, I'll throw these out there quick, just because I don't want to dwell on these, but uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 16, I'm going to default back to King James as I typically read. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 just says, For which cause we faint not, though our outward man perish, or our outward flesh perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. You see, so he, 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 he sort of spoke about two different uh, man, uh, two different, not, not two different men, but in other words, two different parts of his flesh, two different parts of his man, the outward man and the inward. Uh, and notice it says, the inward man is being renewed day by day. And what part of us is renewed? Our mind is renewed, right? Romans 12 says that our mind is being renewed. And he says, my inward man is being renewed. So a little evidence there, the inward man is flesh. Uh, Romans 7.22, last verse I'll give you uh, as far as defining this, but Romans 7.22, Paul uh, says that he delights in the law of God after the inward man. But he saw another law in his members warring against the law of his mind. That may sound a little confusing at first, but basically what he just did there is he said that he had, this is him recalling when he first heard the Ten Commandments. And he says that he delighted in the Ten Commandments after his inward man. Now, it doesn't say at first what that means, what inward man means, but then he later refers to that law being in his mind. Because he says he sees another law in his members, another, the law of sin in, in his body, that was warring against that law, the Ten Commandments, in his mind. Before he said the law was in his inward man, then he said it was in his mind. So I could go into that a little bit further, but you can kind of see the inward man is referring to, to our mind, okay? Uh, so with, with having defined that, let's go to Ephesians 3.16, and this is where I'm going to get to the crux of my point here. Ephesians 3.16 specifically says that uh, it, it, it's actually the, the verse, the first verse that God used to really show me and hone in on how God speaks to us. This may not sound revelatory to you at first, but this, God actually told me, I was praying, I remember where I was, I, was remember, I remember in the hallway in which I was walking, and God said in my mind, and before I even say this, we never at this church, I never will ask you to believe me because I say God just told me so. Never. So what I'm about to tell you is for the sake of telling you a story and a testimony, not for the sake of proving my point. Okay? I will always show that to you from Scripture. Okay? By the mouth of two or three witnesses, not just me saying something, but you've got a whole bunch of witnesses in the Bible that are saying the same thing as me. Therefore, it is true. Right? Not because I said so. So you always want to verify things. Uh, even if it sounds good at first. So, but the Lord did take, this is an actual thing, for the sake of the story, uh, told me, by my spirit in your inner man. And the second he said that, 
as the Lord is capable of doing, along with those words came, I understood what he meant, right? I'm not saying it always happens that way, but the Lord just gave me understanding. When he, when he said that to me, I knew that's how you speak to me. By your spirit, in my mind, in my inner man. And that may not sound revelatory because you're like, yeah, of course. Well, that excludes a lot of stuff that we say at, as the church uh, that, you know, God spoke to me through this or through this or through this. And that term excludes a lot of that. So it, it may sound basic and it probably is, but something that is fundamental also has great repercussions into all the rest of our doctrine. And that certainly does. That's one of them. So now knowing that the inward man is our mind, look at Ephesians 3.16. He's just talking about uh, the Holy Spirit giving revelation to the Ephesians. And he says that, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. Again, I could teach on this for a while. When he says strengthened with might, he's not talking about like might for your body, like muscle might. He's talking about strengthened with might, talking about the power of God to give them revelation. And you know that because first, he's talking about strengthening their inner man with might. That would be your mind. But then he goes on, it says that, in other words, when the Holy Spirit strengthens your mind, your inner man with might, this is what's going to happen. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. So you know this is revelation he's giving. This, this might is, is, is revelation, similar to Acts chapter 1, where he said that you'll be endued with power from on high. That's actually talking about revelation. You could read it right for yourself. Uh, the context of that is, is revelation that he's talking about. So he's talking about God, how God gives revelation to us, how God speaks to us here. And this says that you'd be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. Now, that is a very closed loop there. By his spirit, the spirit is the source, your inner man is the destination, okay? The spirit is the teacher, your inner man is the student. Very closed loop there. Doesn't leave a lot of wiggle room for a lot of stuff there. Uh, if you want to see the beauty of God, if you want to see, uh, if you want to receive revelation of Jesus, for that matter, if you want to receive wisdom on anything, comes by his spirit, at least if you want to receive it from God, it comes by his spirit, which we know is on the inside of us, to your inner man. God speaks from here to here. The reason why that's such an important thing to understand, uh, also, the Bible calls Jesus the shepherd of our soul, which kind of gives you that vibe anyway, right? Uh, uh, specifically, uh, uh, even in Psalms 23, he says, the Lord is my shepherd, and then later says, he restores my soul, which is like Old Testament for he renews my mind, right? So you've got this, you've got this, this spirit on the inside of you that gives revelation to your inner man. The reason why that closed loop is so important is because Christians make a habit, and, and trust me, I've been there before. I'm not criticizing anybody, but it's still wrong. Uh, many Christians make it a habit of reading God's voice, taking cues from physical things and from things around them, as if God were speaking to you, not by his spirit directly to your inner man, but perhaps by his spirit through nature to your inner man. Uh, God moving in a way where something happened coincidentally, and then I read from that that, oh, this must be a God thing. This must be God's will because it happened coincidentally. Trust me, I've been there before. I'm also not saying that things that happened coincidentally couldn't be God doing it, but that's not how God speaks to you. Quite a difference between saying, oh, God worked that out, versus I know that something is of God because it happens coincidentally. There's a lot of things that have happened coincidentally in my life that have just been the devil. And I don't mean the devil working in me. I'm just saying outside of me is what I'm referring to. Uh, things have happened in strange ways before. And I'm like, ugh. And you know what? But in my inner man, the Lord gives me the discernment to say, that coincidence is not God. 
if you will read God's voice from physical circumstance, you'll be a very deceived person. A lot of people don't agree with this. At this church, I'm sure we agree with this here, but a lot of people don't agree with this. Most of the things that happen in the world are not of God. Even coincidences. Most of them are not of God. The devil is called the God of this world. He works in the sons of disobedience that are in this world, which are most people, just so you know. Most people. Furthermore, as I always state, God asks us to pray that his will be done on earth, not just for the sake of it. He asks you to pray that because it's not actually being done fully on the earth, right? Otherwise, we wouldn't have to pray. So if you're looking at a world around you, physical circumstances around you, that you're trying to take cues from and read as to what you should do with my, what should I do with my job? What should I do with my life? What should I do in this decision or that thing? Is this the will of God or isn't it? We look sometimes to outward circumstances to read the voice of God from it, and that's why it's so important to understand that thing that I just told you God told me. But you know what? Forget that I even told you that. Look at what Scripture says. That's how he gives you revelation of knowing his will, of understanding who Jesus is and all that he's provided, both the life and the godliness, knowing what is the will of God for you. You know that by his Spirit in the inner man, not by his Spirit out there in nature somewhere. Even people take Romans 1, for instance, and I'll have to speed this up a little bit, but people even take Romans 1, which talks about the, 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 the understanding that people can get from creation that there is a God out there, and they mistake knowing that there is a God that exists for being able to know who God is or what he's saying to you by nature. That's, that's totally, for you to look at nature and say, hey, it came from somewhere, that's fine. That, that, you don't actually know God. The Bible actually says that. Uh, Brother Matt even gave me a verse a while ago, even uh, people, people, made an altar in the book of Acts to the unknown God. They knew there was a God out there, just didn't know who he was. And so you can find yourself looking at creation, and people can do that, see creation, and know that somebody's out there. Creation doesn't even necessarily tell you anything about God. It just tells you that it came from somewhere. But, you know, tells you that there is a God and that he's powerful. But that all aside, believers take cues from physical things. And we actually... A lot of believers will be discouraged. If they, uh, they thought something was the will of God, God speaks to them, right? And they see something not work out at first. When you're reading the voice of God from your circumstance, you'll take that to mean that God didn't call you to do that because, it's, oh, it's not working out at first. <laughs> God called the disciples, Jesus told the disciples to go across the sea. And Jesus told them that. Told them that. Directive from Jesus. And that's actually when they hit a storm. And Jesus came walking on water and that whole thing happened. They can look at the storm and say, well, it must not have been the Lord that told me this because it's not working out well. You see, what you're doing is you're thinking that God speaks through your circumstances to your inner man. Not so. From his spirit to your inner man, directly. Boom. There's nobody in between there. Spirit's here. I mean, I'm pointing here, of course. The Holy Spirit's in your flesh. It's not like he's reserved to your abdomen. But, you know, we, we typically just do this, right? Because even like the temple and the belly and all, that whole thing. But the Holy Spirit's on the inside of you, and he speaks into your mind. Of course, not everything you hear in your mind, not everything you think in your mind is the Lord. By far, you need to test that. Uh, make sure it's in line with what Scripture testifies about Jesus. There's all that that goes into it. If I was teaching a series on this, I could do a hearing from God series. But for, for uh, the amount that I can share right now, um, we gauge so many different things in our life as to whether something is the will of God or not, whether we're doing something right or not based on did it work out or did it work out coincidentally. Also, we gauge our progress as believers many times by the things that we see. Man, what a terrible thing that would be. Uh, for instance, uh, the Bible says 
that John the Baptist was the greatest prophet, the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. I don't believe, that doesn't mean obviously that John the Baptist was better than anybody else according to his flesh because John the Baptist was as bankrupt as anybody else without Jesus. That just, I'm assuming that just means that the, the, the purpose for which he was ordained was of highest importance in what he was doing, in preparing the way for Jesus, right? That's all that would mean. In the kingdom of God, there's, there's no, uh, someone has something better or a special thing or whatever. There's, not, there's none of that. Uh, we're equally bankrupt without Jesus. We're equally rich with him, right? So that's how it works. But Jesus said that his task, at the very least, right, was the most important out of every Old Testament prophet was John the Baptist. The funny thing is, I think it's in John chapter 10, the rumor that went around about John the Baptist was that he didn't do any miracles. Now, of course, that's not true because God is always working power in those that believe, the power that is toward us who believe, Ephesians chapter 1. But clearly, there was not as much flashy stuff going on in John the Baptist's life, despite the power of God working through him. Uh, it didn't come across flashy to them. And if you were to judge John the Baptist by what you saw, gauge him, his progress, gauge his knowledge of the Lord, gauge any of that by what you saw, you'd be terribly wrong as to the purpose that God was fulfilling in him. But if you go by what you see or try to read the voice of God by what you see, you're always going to be off because the Bible says that don't judge by appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. If you want righteous judgment, you got to get that from the spirit to your inner man. You can't, you can't be consulting the things that you see, especially when you know that God has spoken something to you and you see something that looks sideways on the outside. You need to stick and keep in the middle of your heart what God told you. Things will Look sideways on the outside, even from time to time in your own life, and of course in the world. They don't even know Jesus. Things are going to happen that don't appear to reflect what God told you. Now, God will never tell you something that actually contradicts the things that you see, because God is not a liar. But God will tell you something about who you are in Christ, and on the outside, you won't actually see that a lot of times. Or God will tell you about something you have to expect in your life. And you will say, that doesn't look like it's the direction it's going right now. But you see, when you know he speaks to you by his spirit in the inner man, you don't consult exterior forces to hear from God. And if you're really a person that wants to hear the voice of God and consult him only, because you know he's the only one that is trustworthy to, 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 to be consulted that way, then you need to go with what God has spoken to you. Man, there's so many things that God has spoken to me that I'm like, you know what? That doesn't look that way. Man, even just recently, the Lord told me by this time, and, and, and I don't put time frames on God because then, you know, like some people think it's faith to be like, by next week, I'm going to be feeling better or something. Like that's not, don't do that to yourself because you set a standard that God didn't put on you. And if you're not feeling better by next week, you could be making great progress and you're going to be all down on yourself because you failed your own standard. So don't put time limits on God. Who cares? But it's been so long, Pastor Mike, since I've had this, or it's been so long since I've been experienced this. I, I, I don't care. God doesn't care if God gave you a word. Keep that in the middle of your mind. Not how long it's been or how long it's going to take or anything like that. Keep what God spoke to you in your mind, and it's no, nobody's business what's going on on the right or the left. Just, just leave it all aside because you're going to get robbed of your fruit by looking elsewhere. Keep what God is speaking to you about Jesus and what you have to expect in your life in the middle of your heart. Someone else said something else? Let them say something else. Keep it in the middle of your heart. Something looks sideways on the outside? Keep what God spoke to you in the middle of your heart. That's your only job, right? is just to keep the word of God, the gospel, in the middle of your heart. Uh, but all this to say, we will take cues from the things that we see and even gauge our progress as believers by the things that we see. Man, if John did that or if people were doing that with John, they would have just completely missed him and not even accepted his ministry because maybe someone else was doing more miracles. 
uh, you see, like it, it, that's not how you do things. You don't gauge spiritual things by physical things. You're not going to hear the voice of God by the physical things you see. No, nature does not speak the voice of God. Nature can tell you that somebody's out there doesn't make you know him, though. Okay, I'm going to repeat that one more time before we move on. Nature will show you that there is a God, but it does not make anybody know him. Otherwise, everybody that saw nature, otherwise you could get saved off of nature, and that's not the case. There's very, very little that you can know by nature. Nature gives you just enough to say, somebody's out there, I should probably seek him to get to know him. Nature doesn't tell you God's beauty. Nature doesn't tell you uh, God's will for you. And no exterior thing is going to do that either. Uh, the one thing, I'm going to say one more thing on this, and then I'm going to show you how this applies to the temple, and then we're going to wrap up right here. I got just a few more minutes. Uh, let me see here. Okay. Um, quick question. You may say, well, can't God speak to me through other people? Uh, yes. But it's still his spirit in the inner man. It's not, even when someone is speaking to you or even like you're receiving right now, the Holy Spirit, even if it's the Holy Spirit working in your heart for my sake, for instance, right now, right? Lord, show me something. My words are going out. You're letting my words come into your mind, and the Holy Spirit is taking those and giving you revelation. It's still his spirit in the inner man. Uh, you're not able to know something simply just because the words that are said. The Holy Spirit's still working in your inner man. Sometimes the Holy Spirit can work in your inner man for someone else's sake. Sometimes he can work in your inner man for your sake. But it's still you consulting God here. You consult God here. What are you saying to me, Lord, here? Uh, despite anything outside, what are you saying here? Uh, that's what is most important. Okay, so quick little point about that, but I just want to throw that out there as well. Uh, and I'm still learning a lot of how certain things work, but I know that for sure. The Holy Spirit working in your mind to tell you the truth is the thing that you need to hold on to. Again, as long as it is in line with Scripture, in line with what Jesus has done, and it, as long as it's in line with that, hold on to those things that God is speaking into your inner man, even if it seems to contradict anything outside of you, because this is not the voice of God here. The, the voice of God speaks here. Four, further confirmation of that. This is actually exactly what you see in the layout of the temple, right? And we're going to stop right after I sort of make this point to you. First uh, Kings six seventeen. Remember I, I was showing you how uh, this is called our flesh, but uh, specifically our mind is called our inner flesh? Really awesome with the temple. Really, really cool. If you were to go on our glossary, you would see that the word house is a word that can be used to symbolize our flesh also. 1 Kings 6.17 says, and the house, that is the temple before it, was 40 cubits long. The house it's referring to is uh, this part here, the house. Again, there are different terms that it used, uh, for instance, even, don't go here, but 2 Chronicles 3.5 calls us the greater house. Uh, there are different terms it uses, but here in, 1 Kings 6.17 is calling this place the house. Now drop down to verse 27. Same chapter, just drop down to verse 27. Now it's talking about this room here, the smaller one. And it says, and he set cherubims within the inner house. You see, as if we needed further confirmation that this is the head of the temple, the inner house. The house and the inner house, just exactly the way. Knowing that the word house is a word that is used symbolically for our flesh, he's saying this is the flesh and the inner flesh, literally. So, Calling this place the inner flesh, like I said, is, is as if we needed further confirmation that this, in fact, is the, the skull, is, in fact, our mind, our understanding. you got the eyes, the understanding, all that jazz here. Uh, this is further confirmation, the inner house, right? Uh, now, 
another thing, you can throw it up there if you want. Second Chronicles 4.22 also even calls the doors. It calls um, these doors in the front here, the doors of the house, and calls these doors the inner doors. So it, we're going to talk about more about the doors in the future, but these are the inner doors because they're the doors to the, to the mind, to the inner man, to the inner house, right? So, uh, I, again, we, we have already plenty of, uh, of confirmation of that, proof of that, rather, in the past. So here is the awesome point about the inner house, right, which we know represents our mind. 1 Kings 6.19, and like I said, I will be closing very shortly. 1 Kings 6.19. I should basically just, after this, have one more passage to bring you to, and that's it. 1 Kings 6.19. I'll read it with you over here. It says, uh, And the oracle he prepared in the house within to set there the ark of the covenant of the Lord. So, of course, you know he's talking about this room here. But he says the oracle. He calls this room the oracle. Uh, I'm convinced people didn't know what to do with that Hebrew word because they called it the oracle. Now, I should have probably looked this up even before service, but I believe the word oracle means sort of like a, a saying, right, like a, a word. But I don't know if oracle is typically used of like an inspired word or something like that. They probably didn't know much. To, and other translations translate this, that word oracle even in different ways. Truth of the matter, though, you look at that word, the word means speaking, conversing. Like that's actually what the word means. You can look at it. You can look at its roots. If you, if you have like a Strong's Bible or something like that or an app, Bible app, in which you can do that. Uh, I use Olive Tree, but uh, I, I, I only use that for certain reasons. There are other Bible apps out there as well. The oracle means the speaking. How awesome is it? The head of the temple is referred to as the conversing, or like the place of conversing. The conversation place is what this room is referred to. Sounds like by his spirit, in the inner man, or in the inner house, is how God speaks to you. So much so that he calls your head my place of conversation, where we talk. That's where I talk with you, in your head. People talk about hearing voices and stuff like that, so you may, you may want to be careful how you term uh, this particular point to other people. God told me is probably sufficient for, for most people. But you need to know that your head is God's place of conversation. It's where he speaks to you. Next week, I'm going to talk to you about the fact that there are lamps in the belly here. You can see all these lamps here. And those lamps are placed there. Uh, all these lamps here placed as light in our belly to enlighten the eyes of our understanding. And therefore, that's why this room is called the place of conversing, because the voice of God, the wisdom of God is on the inside of you right now. The Bible says in, uh, I think it's 3 John, I'm not sure. It says that the truth is, uh, is in us and will be with us forever. And this is the truth right here uh, that gives light to our eyes, enlightens the eyes of our understanding, comes up into this room, actually through these doors, which that will be for several weeks from now, through these doors here to enlighten our eyes. And that's why this room is called the place of conversing. This is where we speak. This is where we talk. He actually, specifically, I'll read you in just the next verse, and, that, and then we'll close. In between the cherubim, in between the eyes, in other words, in the middle of your heart, is where God speaks to you. And you see, that eliminates a lot of crazy stuff. It eliminates you getting so off track as if you feel like God's trying to give you a little hint by something that went on. God's not trying to give you any hint by what's going on. Oh, I guess God just did that to get my attention. No, unless he was speaking in your inner man something that was in line with Jesus, he wasn't doing anything to get your attention. Whether looking positive or a car accident or whatever it was, people say things like that because they think as believers 
that God speaks to us through our circumstances all the while. He's put lamps, he's put his spirit, his light on the inside of you to give light to your inner man as you allow him through those doors to put that law between your eyes, to instill that gospel between your eyes. And therefore, as he does that, that's him conversing, that's him speaking to you, that's him giving you revelation in your inner man by his spirit. By his spirit in the inner man. But I love the fact that this room is called the conversing. You know, the Lord, when the Lord was first telling me this, again, this is not proof, this is just cool. I'll share it with you. The Lord has called this to me in prayer, the chat room. He's called it to me the war room, because uh, if you know what the fight of faith is, you understand what that means. Uh, he's called it, uh, man, I wrote even some of the things down. He's a... Uh, <laughs> uh, he said, like, classroom of one, because basically this is where we're taught. There's a little classroom here, only one student. Uh, and he's even told me before, uh, what was the other thing I wrote down? Oh, this is kind of, you may not, not everybody may understand this, but he's called it also the parent-teacher conference. <laughs> because uh, the temple represents, like, the mother of Jesus, and I know that people, that's going to rub people the wrong way if you don't understand what I'm saying. Giving birth to Jesus, right? So this temple is the mother of Jesus, and Jesus being the teacher, uh, it would be our teacher teaching the parent-teacher parent conference. So I'm not sure if you're following that. But anyway, I thought that was kind of funny too. So anyhow, all that's extra. Let's stick to Scripture here. Uh, last passage, Exodus 25.20. Last passage. I'm basically just up on time anyway. So Exodus 25.20, New King James Version. I'm only using the word New King James here because it clearly translates the word speaking rather than King James says commune. And uh, it, it's... Less clear that way. So, it's, uh, and again, last passage. So stay with me on this last passage. Very cool stuff. It says, And the cherubim shall stretch, stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings. So what this is talking about is, this is talking about, remember in the tabernacle I told you last week, these cherubim, were, these statues here, were not in the tabernacle, but this was in the tabernacle. So the same way that these two big cherubim uh, represent the eyes of the temple, these cherubim are not specifically mentioned in the building of the temple because they don't represent anything in this, in this particular temple, okay? Not that I'm aware of, at least. It doesn't mention them here. But these two cherubim were obviously upon the ark and present in the tabernacle. Uh, and those two cherubim I went over last time represented the eyes of the tabernacle. So, you know, these two were the, were the parallel to these two in the temple, okay? So that's what he's talking about here, all right? So he's actually talking about the cherubim, which represent the eyes of the tabernacle. And then it says... Uh, let's see, they stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat, covering the lid of the ark with their wings, and they shall face one another, just the way the temple is, uh, the temple cherubim are, are facing one another, as you notice right from that picture. And it says, uh, the face of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. And it says, you shall put the mercy seat, or the lid, on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony, the law, that I will give you. Now watch this. He's talking about all this stuff, which we went over last week. And then he says, in verse 22, regarding the two eyes of the, of, of the tabernacle, the two cherubim, the counterparts to these two, he says, and there, between the cherubim, I will meet with you, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are on the ark of the testimony, about everything which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. There, between the eyes, is where I will speak with you. Both, this is sort of solidified both by the tabernacle and the temple. 
The tabernacle specifically says between your eyes. That means in the middle of your heart, right? We went over that last time. That's where I will speak with you. And that's where I will give you, this is everything in commandment. In regard to the temple, it doesn't say between the cherubim or something. It says this room is the place of conversation. It's called the conversing. And I say that all that to, to, to prove to you the fact that God speaks to you by his spirit in your inner man. And that's what will actually alleviate. Again, it may sound like a very basic, fundamental thing, and it probably is from a, a foundational perspective. But it will keep you from a lot of distraction in your life. You won't be looking outside of you for everybody's opinion or how circumstances are moving to gauge your progress in the Lord. Listen, did you actually realize you could have, according to the parable of the seed and the sower, this is a true fact, you could have a change of heart and receive life-saving revelation, boom, from God, and not see a single change in your life yet. And something just dramatic changed in your mind, and everything looks the same on the outside. How is that true? We'll read Mark 4, Matthew 13, Luke 8. You'll see it very clearly, especially Luke 8. Because when you receive the word of God, it takes time and continuance in a revelation before the fruit is manifest. And what a disservice we'd be doing ourselves, even in that regard, right? To be looking on the outside for taking cues from God and what you think maybe you're on the total wrong track. I'm talking about someone who actually is receiving revelation from Jesus. You think you're on the total wrong track looking on the outside. And meanwhile, you've got fruit-bearing seed on the inside. It just needs time to bear that fruit. So you see, it just messes you all up. There's not a, a single, I could give you a bunch of scenarios. There's not a single scenario in which you taking cues or trying to hear God's voice or gauging yourself or gauging other believers or whatever it is from the outside that's actually going to help you. God wants to speak to your inner man, and he's put his lamp on the inside of your belly to do so. Just consult the Lord. Keep reading your Bible. Keep coming to church. Get those outside influences so the Holy Spirit can work in your mind through other people as well. But, uh, but acknowledge the Lord in your heart, and the Lord will speak to you. And that's probably all I'm going to be able to say about that. But uh, it's awesome stuff. You got the, your skull is God's place of conversing. That's where, that's where you can talk with him. He can talk with you. And that's where he gives you revelation, right? And when he gives you revelation, don't turn from it to the right or to the left. Don't consult anybody else that would uh, contradict it. Right, just keep that in your heart. It's going to bear awesome fruit in your life. We hope you enjoyed this message from Reform Church. If you have, please share this with someone else and help us get this uncommon truth out to the world. If you'd like to support this good news, you can do so at reformchurch.com give. Also on our website, you can take advantage of our free messages, articles, and even full discipleship courses. Start reforming your mind now at reformchurch.com.